the San Francisco Experience podcast, brought to you by Jim Herlihy. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley perspective for a global audience, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 22, Episode 13, Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo's Mission to China, talking with Dexter Roberts of the University of Montana. Our guest today is Dexter Roberts, Director of China Affairs at the Marine and Mike Mansfield Center, University of Montana. A non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council, he lived in China for almost 23 years and served as China Bureau Chief for Bloomberg Businessweek. He joins us from his office in Missoula, Montana. Hello, Dexter, and welcome back. Hi, Jim. Uh, Great to be back on your show. Dexter, please take a moment to tell us about your work at University of Montana. I've got an exciting new role as of just a few months ago, the one that you just mentioned, Director of China Affairs at the Mansfield Center. Maybe I'll just tell you a little bit about it uh, for your your listeners as well. Mike Mansfield, as you may already know, was a, a Montanan as well as a global statesman, born to humble circumstances here in Montana, worked in the the mines of Butte as a, as a youth, and then served in all three branches of the military. He later became the majority leader of the U.S. Senate and uh, was known for his bipartisanship there and also the longest-serving U.S. ambassador to Japan. So the center here is focused really in two broad areas, democracy and civic engagement and Asia and China. Mike Mansfield also, as well as serving as the U.S. ambassador to Japan, had a lifelong interest and in seeing a better U.S.-China relationship. He visited the country multiple times, first as a, as a soldier, actually. And then notably in 1972, right after former President Richard Nixon uh, started the process of normalization of ties, Mansfield was a big proponent of normalization of ties. 50th, we celebrated the 50th anniversary of that historic trip by Man- Mike Mansfield uh, in early uh, spring of 1972 last year. I'm obviously focused on the China side, basically three branches working education, a dialogue series focused on China. We'll expand, I'm expanding out and also research and analysis. So uh, one last thing I just say is even before the, the new position as director of China Affairs, I've been teaching classes on modern Chinese history and politics of China here at the University of Montana. Very impressive indeed. Dexter, Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo just concluded a four-day trip to Beijing and Shanghai. In her role as Commerce Secretary, she administers U.S. policy on tariffs, investments, and export controls on China. She was the fourth senior Biden administration official to visit China in the last three months, following Secretary of State Antony Blinken, climate czar John Kerry, and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Who is Gina Raimondo, and what did she accomplish on her trip? Well, Gina Raimondo, Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, um, as as you know, is the former governor of Rhode Island. I believe she's in her early 50s. For the purposes of what of her recent trip and our conversation today, uh, first of all, uh, she understands China. I've heard her speak on China a number of times. She's very impressive. She's known as a straightforward talker, uh, no-nonsense, 
and a good negotiator. So she traveled to China on this visit at a time of really unparalleled friction between the two countries, the U.S. and China, and very much uh, present in the business and, and uh, business trade and investment relationship between the two countries. On this particular trip, she was dealing with some of the traditional challenges that U.S. companies have been facing in China for literally decades. I mean, since I first showed up in China as a journalist, a business journalist in the mid-90s, uh, even before China entered the World Trade Organization, uh, U.S. companies have been concerned about restrictions on what, what sectors they can invest in, a poor intellectual property rights regime, so they end up seeing their technology stolen, um, and, and a crucial one, an unpa- unfair playing field where Chinese companies are favored with subsidies by the state. All those issues now, all these years later, are still uh, unfortunately very much there. So she's dealing with that. On the non-traditional or the newer challenges, we have things like, well, for example, a new anti-espionage law, Mm -hmm. which is defined in a very, not a very transparent manner. So U.S. companies now have have a a very serious added worry that their business operations in China, particularly those involved in information or even just those companies that are doing due diligence and trying to find out information about potential partners or about the investment climate, Some of those things seem to potentially be now classified as issues of state security. So U.S. companies and other companies, the foreign investors from other countries, are very concerned that they could find themselves falling afoul of this new new non-traditional threat of the new anti-espionage law. There's big, big concerns, which related concerns about managing data. China has, over the last year, made it much more harder to, to gather information on things that were once taken for granted, um, bond filings, corporate information about Chinese companies. Now, on the economic side, youth unemployment, which is which is soaring in China, they just announced they're ending the release of youth unemployment figures. So U.S. companies and other foreign investors are facing these, these new challenges, uh, which are quite frankly, quite daunting and and serious in China today. Just to put the relationship between China and the United States into perspective, the annual flow of trade between the two countries totals $700 billion. $700 billion, number one. And number two, there are about 70,000 U.S. companies that do business in China. So by far, this relationship, this trade relationship with China is the biggest trade relationship that the United States has. And of course, it's one which has evolved over the last 40, almost 50 years. So that's number one. But number two, this is almost the first time in modern history anyway, where such a large trading partner, business side on the trade side, is not really a quote unquote friend, if you will, of the United States, you know, from a strategic point of view. And that occurred to me yesterday that we have this enormous trading relationship. When we think of all the trading relationships that the United States has, whether it's with Canada, Mexico, Germany, France, Britain, you name it, all of those countries range for their, some of them are allies. Uh, they're, they're friendly to the United States. And, you know, the United States, both on a trade from a trade perspective and a foreign policy perspective, sort of gets along with and more or less see eye to eye with 
our other big trading partners. But in the case of China, that's quite different. How do you think that disconnect has become even more apparent over the last uh, year or two? And then, of course, when, when Secretary Raimondo was in China, when asked about investing in China, she used the words, I think China's uninvestable. How did the Chinese take to that description of China being uninvestable from an American investor's point of view? What she said was she was hearing more and more from U.S. companies, their, their fear that China was becoming uninvestable, which is a, you know, a slight distinction. But I don't think she said this has become uninvestable. But instead, companies are starting to say that. Mm -hmm. And she's not the first person that is that has used that word to describe the, the direction of the relationship. This is a real, real concern. I think, um, as you said, you very ably put it earlier, this relationship, this economic trading and investment relationship is hugely important to both countries, mm -hmm. both the U.S. and to China. Here in the state that I sit in and where I'm from, Montana, it's a potential enormous market for, for, for us. China is the largest importer of U.S. agricultural goods. Montana is a big agricultural state, mm -hmm. and the hope from amongst many people who are in that industry are that China will become an increasingly important market. So there's no denying how important the relationship is to both sides. China also, of course, sits sort of the, the center of a global supply chain, which big companies from around the world, and certainly not just in the U.S. and China, are deeply reliant on, but across Europe, Japan, and the rest of Asia around the world. So it's a very, very difficult place to be in. I think both sides are looking at the other side and seeing things they don't like. China looks at the U.S. and sees that the U.S. administration now under Biden, first of all, left all the tariffs in place. Mm -hmm. There was a huge buildup in tariffs, of course, during the former Trump administration. None of those were lifted. At the same time, the Biden administration has launched a concerted effort to to limit the advancement of China's advanced semiconductor industry. And the U.S. will say to China that it's very targeted. But the reality is semiconductors are in everything. It's hard to make it targeted. This has a major impact on China's uh, future technological advancement across multiple strategic sectors. So China sees that and feels not surprisingly like the U.S. is trying to block its economic and technological rise. From the U.S. perspective, as I said earlier, we're dealing with these traditional challenges that are very severe, the unlevel playing field, the poor intellectual property environment, the outright theft of technology transfer. I didn't mention the growing cyber espionage, including for business purposes, that's carried out by China. You may remember Commerce Secretary Raimondo herself had her email hacked or, or the news came out that her email had been hacked by apparently Chinese actors right before she visited China. Hmm. So these things go on all the time. So we have these enormous challenges. The U.S. would like to see, I mean, when it boils down to it, the U.S. would like to see a fair, fair business environment for U.S. companies operating in China. The reality is Beijing sees the economic and business sectors as a key part of its geopolitical aspirations. Mm -hmm. So they will continue to favor their own companies, particularly in strategic sectors, to the disadvantage of American companies. No matter how many times they tell us otherwise, that will not change. So this is a very, very difficult spot. No easy answers for, for trying to mend relations, business and economic relations between the two countries. Over the past year, there are two 
verbs that are used in relation to trade with China, not only by the United States, but also by the EU, Japan, South Korea. Sometimes they talk about decoupling. Sometimes they talk about de-risking. Dexter, could you explain to us what is the difference between decoupling the trade relationship or de-risking the relationship? Are they materially different? Well, from the U.S. perspective, yes, they are different. De-risking is ensuring that the really most strategic parts of the economy, we saw through the pandemic how important it was and how much of a problem it was that a lot of our uh, medical supplies, things like masks, were not key ingredients in pharmaceuticals, were not produced here in the U.S. That becomes a serious problem at a time of geopolitical stress as during the pandemic. Advanced semiconductors is a sector that the, the, our, the U.S. government has decided is very, very important. We need to put up walls that ensure that we have production in our own country of advanced semiconductors. We have the Chips and Science Act, which is bringing investment, including TSMC, into Arizona, TSMC being the world's leader in the production of advanced semiconductor chips, the Taiwanese company. So there's efforts to bring that production back home in strategic sectors. So this would be de-risking. We will continue to have a strong economic relationship. We will continue to source from China, but in key sectors that are of, of real national strategic importance, we can't have those in a country that we have a, a difficult political relationship with. We might be able to have it in a, in a partner. From China's perspective, they are one and the same. They don't see de-risking and decoupling, mm -hmm. and they've said this quite, quite openly. They feel like de-risking is a, a nice way of saying decoupling, mm -hmm. but they but they they claim that they believe that 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 the U.S. is actually trying to seriously separate the you know separate the economic and and business and investment relationship between the two countries. So there's a there, there's a real difference in opinion there. And as I said earlier, it is hard to make those distinctions, particularly when you're looking at something like semiconductors, which is in everything from our mobile phones to you know, advanced ballistic missile systems. Let's move on to the issue of national security. It seems as though both the Biden administration and before the Biden administration, the Trump administration, there seemed to be a reawakening, and it seems to be nonpartisan. It seems to go, it seems to go right across the aisle that China represents a significant national security risk to U.S. interest. You know, I'm just wondering, as this as this national security relationship seems to be parting, there seems to be a parting of the ways on the national security side. What next steps could the Biden administration take to address some of those concerns about national security, legitimate concerns about, for instance, China seems to be siding somewhat with Russia on the Ukraine war. Their stance in the South China Sea is one that seems to doesn't sit well with the United States. What can the United States do in the national security arena? Are there any bridgeable areas in the national security area where the United States and China can see eye to eye? First of all, I think what the U.S. is doing right now under the Biden administration is pretty right on the money. So I do think we in the U.S. belatedly woke up to the fact that Advanced semiconductors is a key industry. Um, China talks about industries as being, uh, they, they have an expression, civil-military fusion. They have a goal of taking civil industries or non-military industries if, they, if they're high technology 
and leveraging them to build up their military capabilities. And of course, this is something that advanced semiconductor sector is made for. Uh, the U.S. can do the same thing to a degree. China has been very straightforward, at least in its internal speeches, about that desire to, uh, again, harness industries like semiconductors towards building its military capacity. So I do think we, you know, the U.S. administration belatedly realized that this is an industry that we need to put restrictions on on it and on Chinese access, on access by certain Chinese companies. Uh, again, it's very hard in China or looking at Chinese companies to distinguish between those that are outright state-owned enterprises that answer to the government and to the Chinese Communist Party and those that are private. Because China, the system that it has under the Chinese Communist Party, intrudes into the private sector, and we've mm -hmm. seen that more and more under Xi Jinping, it is entirely possible that a quote-unquote Chinese private company might end up ensuring, you know, basically meeting the, the demands of the Chinese Communist Party, and that could be advanced technology transfer over. Uh, what happens if we get cut off? I'll, I'll just see it. I'll just try to answer her without cutting. I, I think that what the U.S. is doing um, uh, with the restrictions on on uh, over the advanced semiconductor sector, I think the announcement, recent announcement that there will be new restrictions on outbound investment yes. into key technology areas, including chips, but also AI and quantum computing. I think those are all steps in the right direction. It's not going to be easy because China wants, of course, access to the, the world's best advanced technology so that they can improve their own advanced technology. And what we're saying here from our side is, no, you're, you're not going to get access to that, at least not from the U.S. and not from our allies either. I should mention that we've, for example, in uh, semiconductor manufacturing equipment, we've been able to convince our allies in the Netherlands and in, and in other countries as well, to stop providing that equipment to China. So I think on balance, what we've seen from the Biden administration is a move in the right direction uh, in terms of in, ensuring uh, the national security here in the United States. You know, Dexter, it, it seems to me that Xi Jinping has kind of brought on this crisis himself. Um, you know, for the, he's been in power now for about 10 years, and prior to his coming to power there seemed to be a there seemed to be a, a tacit agreement between China and the United States that we would grow the we would grow the trade relationship uh, the investment relationship and you know China's growth in the military sector China didn't represent it was it was always independent but it didn't really represent a threat to to the United States to uh, US allies and it seems that since Xi Jinping has come into power, that bet is off. And uh, so in a sense, I mean, it, it would seem, I guess there's plenty of blame on both sides, but it would seem to me that yes. Xi Jinping has sort of has stepped up the game, if you will, um, and has, you know, many of his actions have been understandably seen as provocative by the United States, and it's taken us 10 years to get to this point. It's not as though we've been trigger-happy about this, no pun intended. Are, is there any counsel around Xi Jinping, you know, counseling a little bit uh, a little bit of wisdom? Uh, let's back off a little bit. Uh, don't you see that, you know, uh, our actions, we as Chinese, that our actions as Chinese are being interpreted very provocatively by the United States? And as a result, now they are cutting us off from their leading technology. He doesn't seem to 
except that he has brought this on himself? Or am I being too am I being too America centric with, with that point of view? Well, I, you mentioned a moment ago the blame the blame is on both sides, and that's absolutely true. You know, it takes it takes two to tango. Yes. There's China has legitimate concerns about what the U.S. is doing. I understand what we're doing, and as I just said, I think it's the right step. But China, not surprisingly, is upset about it. I do think you're right that Xi Jinping has brought uh, has brought new challenges to the relationship yes. for the. For the award for the ultimate understatement. Uh, he has created, I mean, I the shorthand I use to describe his management of, of the economy is a politics in command economy. He Politics has been reinvested into the economy, into business decisions, unlike um, anything I saw in my almost you know quarter century in mm. China. Mm-hmm. Um, after China entered the World Trade Organization back in 2001, uh, there was a sort of a, a, a line we could draw towards a more and more open economy, you know, mm-hmm. originally spawned by Deng Xiaoping with reform and opening back in 79. Uh, there might be one step, you know, might be two steps forward, one step back. There were hiccups. But nevertheless, it was clear what direction China was going. Xi Jinping seems to have broken with that that trend towards increasing openness in the economy. Uh, he really believes that politics should be in command. He's re-injected the role of the Chinese Communist Party into business. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, you know, he's taken, he's encouraged and 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 in some cases ordered Chinese Communist Party uh, cells to be set up in companies, including in private companies, including in big foreign joint ventures. So it affects uh, American companies in some cases. Um, as I said a moment ago, he really sees uh, the economic and business. Uh, Part of the part of China as uh, a key extension of of its geopolitical aspirations. What does that mean? In part, that means that that security has to be injected to every into everything. Mm-hmm. So we heard at last year's party congress, the word security used more than any other phrase. What did we see after that? We saw these raids on U.S. firms, right. including Bain Consulting, Minsk Group, um, and le- big fines levied on them doing things, you know, for business practices that they had been pursuing for many years before. Now, apparently, things that were once allowed are no longer allowed because of this concern. Xi Jinping is also a leader who has resurrected, to a degree, the, the old Maoist expression of self-reliance in Chinese, it's Li Gengsheng. Xi Jinping is constantly talking about how China must become more self-reliant. And he seems to think that that China can become more self-reliant. It can wall off its economy more from the world and the country can continue to develop and succeed. Mm, well, clearly, clearly. But it seems to me that with the with the downturn in the Chinese economy that we're seeing, leaving aside the demographic challenges that they have, the, uh, the over-leveraging and indebtedness of their property sector, leaving those challenges aside, it seems to me that uh, Chinese businessmen, Chinese uh, investors, the average citizen in China— is feeling much more wary and concerned about the future of the economy, which in part is driving the uh, you know the the poor the, the poor economic results where their you know their annual five six percent growth rates are now almost flatlined versus the United States, which is doing you know pretty well. Thank you very much. Yeah, I mean you, we've seen there's been a an unprecedented surge in. Uh, wealthier Chinese emigrating out of the country yes. to places like Singapore and elsewhere. 
been all sorts of news reports related to efforts by these same wealthier people and private business people to get their money out of the country. Mm -hmm. According to Chinese media reports, uh, the recently the head of the largest uh, firm that helped people, uh, you know, wealthier people move abroad and gain citizenship abroad was deti- detained in Shanghai huh. because of concerns, I think, by the by Beijing of capital flight out of China. So there's a real drop in confidence uh, uh, amongst the Chinese private sector class and wealthier mm-hmm. Chinese. We're seeing, you know, by surveys by foreign business, both by the American Chamber of Commerce, also the European Chamber of Commerce, also falling confidence in the economy. Uh, this Earlier this year, the latest survey from the American Chamber of Commerce found that China no longer was a top three investment decision and keep in mind, they're they're serving companies that are that are invested in China. So those companies that have already been making a bet on China, in some cases for many years, are now saying this is no longer our number, our top three right. investment choice. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and you know this is the, that's saying something when China has the world's second largest economy until recently had been growing quickly, maybe the world's largest middle class and so on, but no longer a top three investment decision. And then you see amongst your average Chinese as well, it's harder to measure, given particularly and even harder now with the controls over information. I'm reports, some of them anecdotal, suggest that your average Chinese is feeling far less confident about the future of the country as well. One thing you can look at is the central bank in China does quarterly surveys of asking people about whether they want to save more money in their bank accounts mm-hmm. or whether they want to spend. And we're seeing We've seen a surge in saving because people are afraid. They don't feel confident. They're worried about, you know, need to save for Mm -hmm. a rainy day. They're worried about the future of the Chinese economy. So, yeah, I think there's a, it's fair to say there's a, there's been a precipitous drop in confidence about the future across a whole lot of sectors within China um, in recent, recent months, recent years now. And it's interesting, paranoia, the, if you will, uh, the, the kind of the closing, not completely closing the door on the West, but but sort of pushing it somewhat ajar. That has now been extended to the BRICS, where uh, Xi Jinping in the, the recent BRIC summit in South Africa announced that um, Saudi Arabia, Abu Dhabi, Iran would be joining the BRICS. Now, they're, you know, they're three countries that I don't associate with, uh, with uh, open society and democracy, but he, he seems to be creating this expanding the BRICS group into like-minded authoritarian states. Uh, whether whether that ever comes to anything, who knows? But it, once again, he, he seems, to, seems to be very determined. Uh, he does not, it, it appears to not brook any opposition at all. And uh, perhaps this is what happens when you're an authoritarian, that you just, other points of view or other ideas are are just excluded from the uh, from the conversation yeah i think i think it's fair to say you asked earlier uh whether there was any sort of wise counsel telling xi jinping that he should be maybe he should step back from putting up these walls to the world and i'm afraid right now we're not seeing that at all um this won't be the first time you've heard this but xi jinping has amassed an unprecedented amount of power yes there's a he you know he started with a massive corruption purge 
which did bring down, I think, legitimately a lot of corrupt individuals and officials, but also brought down some of his very biggest rivals. Mm. Uh, so he uh, he started with that, put fear in the hearts of a lot of other officials, and has just go- gone from there, amassing more and more power. So I, I don't believe that he... Um, does have a wise counsel that might be telling him we're moving too fast or maybe we're even moving in the wrong direction. Globally, as you point out, he's pushing he's putting his eggs in the basket of the global south. He's trying to he's trying to find like minded countries that might also be uh, have feel skeptical about a U.S. Uh, a global a global environment that is really led by the U.S. The latest example of that, indeed, we've seen is with the expansion of BRICS. Keep in mind, he you know, he's invited some uh, some of the world's largest oil exporters like Saudi Arabia, <laughs> yes. uh, Russia, of course, you Iran. mentioned Russia. Mm-hmm. He's been very I would I would go one step further than you and, and just say he has decidedly and decisively shown us that, you know, the relationship with Russia and Putin, even at a time when the world is deeply uh, upset and 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 breaking with Russia over its invasion of U- Ukraine, he's decided that this is a time to double down on mm-hmm. the relationship with Russia. And that very much has to do with the fact that both he and Putin uh, are united really in one thing, which is in their mutual distaste for a world that has has a has a leading role for the United States. So they, they would like to see that that the, the U.S. brought down off its pedestal there. They agree on that. Uh, they're going to just they'll, they'll probably get even closer and closer together going forward. Do you think it's a great concern of mine? Um, and by the way, I think it is a great concern of a lot of Chinese people as well. Yes. Even if there is no wise counsel of uh, of people speaking to Xi Jinping now, that doesn't mean they aren't concerned mm-hmm. about the direction of the country. It goes without saying that the ties between the U.S. and China are long and deep. And that includes senior parties, <laughs> senior members of the Chinese Communist Party, many of which have children who've studied in the U.S., have relatives that are U.S. citizens. I mean, Xi Jinping himself, uh, famously, his daughter studied um, at the Kennedy School at Harvard. Really? And infam- infamously, he uh, apparently ordered her to come back when perhaps she, perhaps she didn't want to uh, because uh, he didn't see that. He didn't, didn't think that was a good look for the leader of, of China mm. uh, to have a, a child studying in the U.S., continue studying in the U.S. rather. No, I'm concerned. I do think that concern extends very much into uh, the people within China as well. Many, many, many friends of mine as well uh, back back in China today. Well, Dexter, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, where do you think the Biden administration stands at this point? Because over the last three months, the foremost senior members of his cabinet have been to China, have come back, and doubtlessly debrief the president, whether it's John Kerry talking about climate and energy, Antony Blinken, our top diplomat, Secretary of State, Janet Yellen, former chair of uh, the Fed and now Treasury Secretary, and now Gina Raimondo, who is in charge of the tariffs, export controls, and um, uh, capital controls on, on China. Now that Biden has these four senior trusted individuals of his administration who've come back, who've, who are sharing their perspective with him. Where do you think, where does the Biden administration move at this point? What are its next steps? 
Well, I think the Biden administration is taking the current, from my, from my perspective, has been moving in the right direction. So this is, on the one hand, very proactive in walling off the most important sectors of the U.S. economy and technology that have real national security implications mm-hmm. um, when we don't want the technology to necessarily end up in what we see as the wrong hands. So I think we've seen it obviously with the with the chip sector. Now we're seeing it with outbound investment, as I mentioned earlier, in other advanced technology sectors. Uh, at the same time, the U.S. has sent, as you say, four of our very senior cabinet officials to go talk to China. And I think that was the right decision, and we should continue doing that. Uh, I, I think I think de-risking, uh, even if the Chinese don't always accept, make that distinction from from decoupling. I think that's what we should be doing. Uh, that entails continuing to take all the efforts necessary to maintain a strong economic relationship with one of our biggest trading partners, which is China, where appropriate. So I, those visits by U.S. cabinet officials are key. At the same time, I, I would hope that we start to see senior Chinese officials come this way. So far, it's all been officials from Washington going to Beijing. Mm-hmm. We need to see senior officials uh, coming from uh, Beijing to Washington going forward. But all in all, I think uh, we're, we're headed uh, down the right path with our policy towards China today. Mm-hmm. Well, Dexter, how can our listeners follow you, number one? And number two, how can they, uh, how can they follow up with you with what you're doing at the University of Montana in China affairs? How do they contact you? First, I'll mention uh, my weekly China economic business and political uh, newsletter. It's called Trade War. It comes out every Sunday. You can find that at Dexter, my first name, dot substack dot com. Mm-hmm. As for the Mansfield Center, go to UMT for University of Montana dot edu uh, forward slash Mansfield. You can find information, for example, on our upcoming dialogues, uh, both about uh, more about China going forward and also about our democracy and civic engagement uh, uh, as well. Another place to look for me would be at the Atlantic Council, the the think tank that I am affiliated with in in D.C. That would be Atlantic Council, all one word, dot org uh, forward slash expert forward slash Dexter, my first name, dash Tiff, T-I-F-F, my middle name, dash Roberts. And the last thing would my my own personal website, which is just DexterRoberts.com. Well, Dexter, I'd like to thank you for joining us again today. Looking forward to having you back to talk about the next steps that we'll see coming from the Biden administration when these investment controls and export controls are actually given, uh, at this point, we've, we, we don't actually have all the details about that. But once those details are published by the Biden administration, we'd love to have you come back and give you and for you to give us your take on how the Biden administration is going to implement these export and investment controls. I look forward to that, Jim. Once again, Dexter, thanks so much and look forward to the next time. Yeah, great. Thanks. Looking forward to it. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 439. The San Francisco Experience podcast is carried on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Pandora, 18 platforms in total, with listeners in 60 countries. The San Francisco Experience podcast 
was recently recognized as a top 25 California news podcast by, by Feedspot. This has been Jim Herlihy for the San Francisco Experience podcast coming to you from San Francisco. Mm-hmm.